This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast. This episode, we will kick off our countdown to the best holiday of the year, Halloween. And what better way to start this spooky season than with a look at one of the all-time classic movie monsters, the vampire. Vampires and creatures that suck blood are one of those penultimate horror myths. A creature whose connection to you is out of your control, but who over time sucks the life and very soul from your body, desecrating both the physical and eventually the spiritual parts of you, and causing you to do horrendous actions outside of your control. Add to that the very real and very disgusting facts of the world of parasitic organisms and blood-feasting animals, and you have a recipe for a myth that just won't die. So let's cue the intro music and prepare for a trip to Transylvania in this week's episode! Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast! Tonight's episode, Vampires! Before we get started this week, I just had to give a shout out to one of my new favorite podcasts, the Monsters Among Us Podcast. Monsters Among Us is part of the Dark Myths Collective along with our own show. And I think it's a really good one if you enjoy this show. So I urge you listeners to please go download Monsters Among Us and give it a listen. We're going to play one of their cool intros now. Seriously, their sound design is amazing. And I think you're going to just be blown away by both the production quality and also the info you can get on that show. Anyways, here's the plug for Monsters Among Us. As I come around the corner, my headlights hit this animal in the road. Really low in the sky were these floating balls of light. Five or ten seconds earlier, I watched, you know, a six-foot-one, 270-pound guy walk right onto that elevator. The doors closed, they opened back up, and he wasn't there. I heard a low, rowling sound. I can't sleep, can't do nothing. I'm afraid the thing's going to come through my wall. I mean, it just sounded absolutely evil. Monsters Among Us podcast. iTunes, Stitcher, and MonstersAmongUsPodcast.com. All right, so vampires. Vampires have an extremely deep and long-lived lore behind them, going back nearly as far as written records date. The most common view of the vampire we have in the West is that with roots in Europe, which really stems from stories of dead bodies being disinterred and destroyed post-burial by villagers in towns throughout the regions of Serbia, Wallachia, and Romania, or what we today view as Transylvania. These stories were eventually used by Bram Stoker to craft his masterpiece Dracula, which tells the story of a count who is named, you guessed it, Dracula, an immortal being who terrorizes and drains the life force from a circle of friends who are unfortunate enough to come into contact with him. Many of the stories told about vampires, the methods used to fight them, and the methods the vampire uses to assert its power come directly from these folktales, and I think it's worth going over them to start with. The following quote is from the book Vampire, Burial, and Death, Folklore and Reality by Paul Barber, and it was actually dug up by one of our newest members of the Igor, Elizabeth. Quote, The word vampire entered the English language in 1734, according to the Oxford Dictionary. Vampire mythology goes back much farther, and is quite different from the Hollywood monster we know. The Peace of Passarovitz in 1718 turned Serbia and Wallachia over to Austria. This in turn put occupying forces in place, who began to report unusual local practices. These forces acted like our modern media in telling these strange stories of digging up the dead to kill them. Educated Europeans witnessed these shocking and new practices that were actually ancient rituals. 
there were signs of a person who was a vampire. The dead body would not decompose. Skin, hair, beards, and nails would grow. The dead skin would fall away, leaving new skin behind. Blood in the body would remain liquid. A body exhumed and found to display these signs would need to be dealt with to destroy the vampire. Peter Plagojevitz is an example of how such corpses were treated. Peter lived in the village of Kisilova in the Rom district. He died in 1725, most likely from an epidemic. Ten weeks after he died, nine other villagers died of an illness lasting 24 hours. Before they died, they claimed that Peter had come to them in their sleep and laid upon them. He then throttled them until they were near death. The village became even more upset when Peter's widow said to them that he had come home to collect his shoes and go to another village to torment them. The villagers asked the author of the story to accompany them and the parish priest to dig up Peter's body. The account states that upon bringing Peter up, no odor was noted. His body was intact except for his nose, which fell off. His beard, hair, and nails had grown. Fresh blood was noted in his mouth. And Peter's remains were treated in the common way. He was stabbed multiple times and his body burned. End quote. Two things I love about this quote. First off, why did Peter need shoes? <laughs> like, why, And why did he have to go home? He's like a, a monster of the dead who's come to suck the blood of the living. He couldn't have grabbed a pair of shoes or even stolen the money to buy a new pair. Like, why did he have to come home to his wife? And on top of that, too, I like how they say that he was dealt with in the, in the normal way, in the common way. Like, yeah, you know, it's just like what you do when you have a vampire just stab him through the chest, you know, like, just like you'd spray a bee's nest with some raid. Vampires, or revenants, are beings who in their lives committed some great sin or who were cursed for some reason by the devil. This is a very common part of the story, although the methods to become a vampire are varied even across Europe. For instance, the people of Romania believed that their version of the vampire, known as the Strigoi, were born with two hearts, one of which was active upon mortal life, and one which acted after their death to power their undead bodies. Other similar lifelong curses could cause vampirism, such as being born with a red call or amniotic membrane over your head at birth. It was believed that this signified that your mother had either taken in demonic saliva somehow, I guess through, I don't know, a demonic makeout party or something, or had met a demon with a red hat in their lifetime, which is kind of a shitty side effect of meeting a guy with, I don't know, a bad taste in hockey teams like the Red Wings. Another similar version of this is the belief of the Kashub people, who believe that a red birthmark is the sign that a child is cursed to rise as the undead after their mortal life is over. Some other versions of these origins include a human reaching over a dead body, having a brother who's a sleepwalker, somehow getting blood into an open grave, like getting your own blood into an open grave, having an unhealed wound or even an open mouth at the time of death, or even just having a sort of like, like just being kind of a crappy person during your lifetime, like even just being mean could be enough to cause you to become a vampire. One personal favorite of mine is the Romani story and their belief that a way to actually stop yourself from becoming a vampire is to ensure that your shadow is never stolen during your lifetime. And the way that you can stop your shadow from being stolen is to literally nail it to the wall. So you basically stand with the sun facing towards you so a shadow is cast at a place where a building is either being built or on the foundation. It's not super clear exactly which of those two it has to be, but anyways, 
You stand there with your shadow being pointed behind you, and then someone else will nail the shadow to the wall at its head. And so the idea is that this will stop you from becoming a vampire when you die, I guess. But some versions of the vampire story are also quite sad, or just kind of sad examples of why people believe you could get in trouble or hurt during your lifetime back in these time periods. So one version of this is the Russian belief that the vampire or revenant are actually caused by a living individual being murdered or drowning or committing suicide. And so this quote from 1506 shows what the Russian peasants would do to such a being and how they could try to stop it from coming back from the dead. So, quote, We do not dignify with burial the bodies of those who are drowned or murdered and thrown out. Instead, we drag them into the fields and fence in the place with stakes. And so this quote continues to say, give kind of a reason for why they might go to seek out a vampire. So he says, What is completely unlawful and godless when a cold wind blows in the spring, so that what we have planted and sown does not prosper? We stop praying to the creator and founder of everything. We learn of some person who was drowned or killed and was buried long ago. We dig up the condemned person and throw him somewhere in an out-of-the-way place and leave him unburied. Because we believe, as a result of our great foolishness, that his burial in the past is the cause of the cold. End quote. So, a really interesting take on the whole vampire myth. So usually you hear about them being uh, these people who they believed were vampires being unburied or disinterred and then having a stake put through them or they're being burned, you know, their corpse being burned after death because villagers in the town were actually dying, either from tuberculosis or something else. But in this case, they're just saying that they did it because their their plants weren't prospering. So I guess vampires in the Russian view, at least, also had some control over the weather or could curse curse your your livelihood and your livestock as well. So very similar to the idea of a witch or witchcraft myths in these areas as well. And of course, there is the traditional belief that vampirism can be spread like an infection. In fact, the connection with illness is pretty pronounced, with some versions of the vampire story seeming to describe symptoms of very real illnesses such as tuberculosis, as I just said, also known at the time as consumption, or other long-term diseases that wither away a person until they eventually die. In fact, a tuberculosis epidemic caused a significant vampire panic in New England in the start of the 19th century with people believing that it was a vampire and not this terrible wasting disease that caused their loved ones to continually become more weak and ill until they eventually died. One famous case from this panic is that of Mercy Brown, whose mother, brother, and sister all died from consumption, causing the townspeople to believe that someone in the household must be a vampire. Although why they didn't think that it was some like enemy of the household is anyone's guess. Eventually, with Mercy herself dying of the disease, the townspeople exhumed her body and found that it showed little signs of decomposition and seemed to have fresh blood within its internal organs. Now, as far as I can tell, they dug up Mercy's body as soon as four weeks or as late as two months after, the, after her death. So this would not be enough time to really cause a lot of decomposition. Anyways, in order to stop the revenant, they removed her heart, burnt it, and mixed the ashes with water, and then made her brother drink it, which of course was unsuccessful in stopping the epidemic. So, pretty heinous stuff. So, the roads to vampirism, and even the European variety, can be varied. 
And of course, there is the always popular notion that vampirism may begin as a power granted to those who make an unholy pact with the devil or some other dark force. Because of their connection to the demonic or black magic, vampires are generally considered to be uncommonly powerful, nearly immortal, able to take on the appearance of and control animals such as bats and wolves, and leech the energy out of living humans, most often by drinking their blood, although they can also just come to you in your dream and suck your spiritual power. Vampires also have a nearly hypnotic control over those they come in contact with, and it's their ability to weave their way into your life, making you nearly willingly give yourself to them, that makes them so powerful. However, these beings also have a number of limitations that come from their connection to the demonic. So for example, they can't travel over water, so rivers and oceans are considered methods to escape or potentially stop a vampire from pursuing you. They are most powerful at night, when the connection to the demonic is strongest, and religious incantations and symbols are powerful tools against them. And they can be killed by driving a stake through their hearts, by burning their bodies, and by the use of swords built to look like holy crosses, or even in some cases by swords which just sort of resemble a cross due to their scabbard or handled guard's positioning. So, kind of interesting that Castlevania is kind of correct when it comes to being able to kill demons with a sword that just, like, looks like a cross, or throwing a cross, literally. And of course, the connection with water can also be used in hand with all these other techniques. And so one surefire ritual to stop a vampire, it was believed, was to remove the head and heart of the body on an island, and then burn these things on that island so that the spirit could not seek out another host or victim. So sort of a more permanent disconnection from the area that they once terrorized, I suppose. Now, there are also a number of ways to tell if a body or even a waking person is actually a vampire. These include, for the body at least, an odd or pungent odor, the presence of blood on the mouth or face, red swelling or coloration of the skin, and long-growing fingernails and hair after death. The idea of odor as an indicator is actually very interesting, because one of the strangest things believed to stop a vampire are other powerful smells such as flowers and incense as used in Dracula by Van Helsing. Interestingly, this may have something to do with the idea of garlic as a cleansing method against unclean or demonic forces, because of its strong pungent smell. The idea of odors as being linked to an illness is an old one, with diseases like the plague believed to be spread by noxious odors or mists. And for instance, one common method to stop disease from spreading was to have a mask of pleasing smelling flowers and herbs over your mouth and nose. Garlic is also popularly believed in Romania to be especially holy, and it's thought that it was given to the earth by St. Andrew. Now, whether or not this is actually an ancient custom or a more modern one, like since the time of Bram Stoker writing Dracula, is a little bit up to debate. But a really awesome holiday in Romania is what would basically be their version of Halloween, known as St. Andrew's Night or the Night of the Vampire in which families have many garlic-centric traditions to ward off the undead and demonic in the coming year. On this night, animals are also believed to be able to speak in human tongues, although to hear it is to bring death to your household. And since magic is especially powerful on this night, it's customary for young women to perform scrying ceremonies and other folk magic to try to tell who their future husband will be. So, very similar in many ways to some of the things that maybe you or your family do on Halloween, or at least the spooky things you might have done as a kid to try to scare yourself. Anyways, the idea of garlic to ward off vampires likely comes from these traditions, or at least it's within the same vein as these ideas, 
although an exact sourcing of where the tradition originates from is difficult to pin down. So, vampires are pretty popular in the European tradition, but they're not only found in these folktales, and especially not the idea of a dark entity, which slowly weakens you by strengthening itself. Asia, like in many cases, has some particularly scary versions of this idea. For instance, in India, there is the idea of the Brahmarak Shasha, who wanders the earth drinking blood from a skull cup and has intestines strewn about their head. Coincidentally, the Brahmarak Shasha also has one of the scariest names I have ever seen for a podcaster to try to pronounce live on the air. Another story from Southeast Asia is that of the Manangal, which translates as self-segmenter. This is a being that appears to be a beautiful woman, but who can detach their lower body to fly on bat-like wings into the homes of pregnant women, sucking their blood with their proboscis-like tongue. This idea of a detached body part becoming something like a giant terrifying mosquito is actually kind of common in the folklore of the region, which I guess makes sense since they already kind of have to deal with giant scary mosquitoes and other deadly bugs in their real life. Africa has similar stories of bug-human hybrids, but one of my favorites from Africa is that of the Romanga. The story is from Madagascar, and it's said that this being drinks the blood and eats the fingernails of noble people to make himself stronger. In some versions, this being is not really a monster, but instead is like a hitman or some kind of bodyguard in the employ of a local noble or warlord. I don't know what they're paying that dude, but like, how much money does it take, or how much power does it take for you to eat fingernails as a job? It just seems horrible. The Romanga actually brings up a really good point here, which is that these ideas of vampires are tied up with ideas that the body, or even the bodily fluids of a person, are inherently linked to their vitality or spirit in some important way. Obviously, blood is linked in many ways to our energy and to our lives. And ancient peoples probably noticed that if a warrior seems to be gushing a lot of this red stuff all over the place, they're going to get weaker and they will eventually die. And if one starts spouting blood, say, from your mouth or eyes or something due to illness, it likely meant that that person was about to die. So the link between blood and life or the soul isn't all that surprising, and it spawned a lot of medical techniques that we now know aren't helpful, such as bloodletting or leeching to remove what was considered bad blood and ultimately the source of an apparent illness. But this idea of nail clippings or body parts in other ways being magical or powerful is a very common motif we see in Western magical thinking. It's believed, for instance, that magic is most powerful if used with a part of the person you want to perform the magic on, which is why in so many stories of love potions, an essential ingredient is a lock of hair, or even, as gross as it may seem, nail clippings, or a piece of skin or something. And it's why in many cultures, it's thought that these extraneous pieces of you must be burned or buried, or why in some cultures the eating of flesh is believed to bring you more spiritual power. It's a gross but important side note, I think, on this story, and it's a part, I think, of why the vampire myth is so common across the world. Okay, so vampire legends are varied and interesting, but how can we explain some of the evidence these people claim to see when they exhume dead bodies? Why do bodies seem to not decompose sometimes, have blood on their mouths or hands, or seem to continue to grow hair and nails? Well, a lot of this has to do with people not really knowing a lot about how bodies actually decompose. When you die, your body begins a process of sort of emptying itself out. 
Now that there isn't any heart to circulate your blood, it all starts to be affected by gravity, meaning that it settles to the bottom of the body and pools. So at times it might seem that blood is still present within a body that's been long dead for months. But eventually, that blood has to go somewhere. And as the skin begins to break away, open sores may form that causes blood to pool and fall out. Although it is also the case that blood may escape out the mouth or other openings within the body. Again, because, like, it has to go somewhere. This is likely why vampires, when exhumed, may seem to have blood in or around their mouths. It's just a weird but common part of the decomposition process. The body's cells also begin to pop or lice, releasing all kinds of fluids and other watery residues that may also appear to be red in color or nearly blood-like if mixed with leftover blood or tissues that are breaking away due to their decomposition. This means that some organs break apart faster than others, specifically those organs composed of lots of watery cellular tissues like the brain, while the parts of the body that are more musculature or rigid like muscles, and of course bones, will take longer or potentially be the leftovers once decomposition is over. And on top of that, the decomposition process means that parts of the body will break down and release gases that would normally be released through other, more comical means. So methane may pool and cause the stomach to distend, or when moving the corpse, an escape of trapped gases may occur. Hey, hey there. there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. This is likely why at times people exhuming and staking supposed vampires would notice a groan or a noise when the stake is driven in, as well as a horrible stench. It's not the demons being released, unless we consider farts to be demons. Which, like, obviously this show is not above fart jokes. You're welcome. Now, noticing that hair and nails appear to continue growing is also a likely feature of the decomposition process, with the skin shrinking at these areas as the cells lose all their fluid and the skin tightens. This will show hair and nails that we wouldn't normally see, but which are present as it's growing giving the appearance of growing hair, but not actually being caused by growth. As for bodies being exhumed that seem to show no decomposition, I wonder if that doesn't have something to do with ground temperatures at the time of burial, meaning that those bodies decomposing in a colder time period, or even in a colder climate, would take much longer than those that are buried in a hot time period, or in a hot climate. But there are documented cases of the body not appearing to change much upon death, of course and the rate of decomposition can vary significantly. I mean, it's not like they bury you and within a week you're a spooky skeleton. You may appear to be nearly normal, or at least slightly worn but still passable, for a few months or even years after burial if the conditions are just right. So those stories aren't that amazing to me, really. I would say that for all intents and purposes, the vampire thing is pretty well explainable. Although why they might shine with a sexy masculine musk and coy grin is anyone's guess. 
Maybe a more interesting question is related to those scary bug vampires the people of various Asian and African countries came up with. Specifically, can something survive on only blood? And how is that possible? Furthermore, just how much blood would a vampire need to drink to survive? Obviously, we know of parasites such as mosquitoes, ticks, and others that survive solely off of human blood. These organisms are ones who need blood either to survive fully, like ticks, or to perform some function in their life cycle. For instance, mosquitoes either need blood to lay eggs, or need blood to lay a significantly increased amount of eggs depending on the species. In terms of larger animals, probably the most well-known blood-eating animal is the vampire bat. But surviving off of blood, or hematophagy, is not just confined to vampire bats, but also appears in vampire finches, the hood mockingbird, and the oxpecker. Interestingly, these birds all evolved on small, isolated islands like the Galapagos, where this trait may have been helpful in them continuing to survive in such extremely competitive surroundings. Anyways, in all of these cases, blood is only a secondary food source, or a source used only in extreme circumstances, and so they don't take in all of their nutrition in this way. And some human societies practice this as well. I mean, some people eat blood pudding or other things made from blood. And there are stories in history of people that were out trying to survive, or even warriors drinking the blood from their horses or something. So this idea of blood as a last-minute refuge for food is not all that uncommon. But can you, as a person, actually survive on only blood like that creepy goth kid said he could in computer lab in the 7th grade? Well, first off, what do we need to survive? As a human, at least assuming all of you listening are humans, you need around 1,500 calories a day to survive and maintain a healthy weight. You also require vitamins and other things like sugars, proteins, fats, and cholesterol. All the stuff you would normally get from eating food. But if you're only drinking blood, how much of that stuff would you really get? Well, as it's hard to find nutritional info on human blood, we're going to have to assume that it is of similar nutritional value to lamb's blood which for some unknowable and frankly terrifying reason is available on Fitbit.com. I guess it's on there for any chupacabras out there or people who are attending their local Black Sabbath but are watching their waistlines. I mean, the fact that this is available on a Fitbit website seems like super sketchy, right? Like, is this entrapment for really stupid serial killers or something? You're just at home relaxing after a night of murdering and... and debauchery and he's like well i gotta log my food let's see i i drank about six quarts of lamb's well i bought six quarts of lamb's blood most of that lamb's blood got on my body and not in my mouth regardless according to this website 100 grams of lamb's blood or approximately 100 milliliters of lamb's blood is 75 calories contains 35 percent of your daily required proteins 212 percent of your daily iron intake and 0% of basically every other required vitamin. So really, if you're only drinking lamb's blood, you would probably die of scurvy or some other vitamin deficiency way before you starve to death. Actually, the amount of iron in the blood is comically high, so high in fact that ingesting it would probably kill you due to iron toxicity. The normal amount of iron in blood is around 1.5 grams per milliliter of blood and toxic effects due to iron ingestion start at around 10 milligrams per kilogram of body tissue, and an average adult weighs around 200 pounds, or 91 kilograms. So let's do the math here. 
If you drank that whole 100 milliliters of lamb's blood, you would take in 100 milliliters times 1.5 grams per milliliter of blood, which is equal to 150 grams of iron. If you weighed 91 kilograms, that means your iron levels would be approximately 1.65 grams per kilogram of body weight. So okay, one serving of straight lamb's blood won't break your body, although maybe you should reevaluate your life choices. But we need 1,500 calories per day to survive, so that would be how much blood? Well, if we're doing just pure lamb's blood, we would be looking at 20 servings of lamb's blood. That would be 3,000 grams of iron, which if you weigh 91 kilograms, is 32 milligrams per kilogram. So that puts us at the high end for iron toxicity, basically the point where your organs start to shut down. So yeah, don't drink blood, kids, even if all your favorite pop stars are doing it. Well, what is it about the vampire that has kept it in our societal consciousness for so long, then? Even if the most recent versions of the character are more pre-teen than terrifying. I think it has to do with this idea that something can come into our rooms at night, and while we're sleeping, drain our life away, while simultaneously gaining slow but significant control over us. In many ways, this makes the vampire similar to UFO abductions in a sense, where unsuspecting people tell us that they find themselves under the control of something else something sinister, and more powerful than they are, for reasons that they don't understand. And our modern-day world still has stories of blood-sucking beings out there. I mean, there are stories of chupacabra, or aliens who suck the blood out of cows for some reason, or still stories about demons who suck the life force out of their victims over prolonged periods of time. So while the vampire may have changed shape, I think like with many other times of magical or legendary stories, it's more of a cosmetic change than a change in kind. Well, then where did this idea of the vampire actually come from? One explanation is that this is just a common trope, a sort of permanent mythological figure that is brought up again and again because of its commonly terrifying qualities. One example of this may fit in with the story of Lilith, a demon or group of demons who steal human babies before they're baptized. The idea of Lilith really comes from older traditions of evil-winged creatures who come in the night, seduce their victims, and take away either themselves or their children for the purposes of drinking their blood. Over time, this idea became a part of the Catholic mythic tradition, with Lilith at times being called the first wife of Adam who left the Garden of Eden and vowed to kill human children for the rest of her existence, although the idea of Lilith and even the name is actually much older. Anyways, the idea of Lilith eventually became that of a seductress, much like a succubus, I suppose, who comes to either steal children or drain the life force of humans. In many ways, this fed other notions of stories about darker evil figures who come in the guise of humans to steal away your life. And a lot of cultures have this same sort of story, or at least a similar version of it, with a charming or seductive being tricking you into becoming its host as they parasitically steal your life or power from you. Interestingly, in many ways, a lot of these stories about vampires are also very similar to stories that were told about Jewish peoples coming into new towns. These anti-Semitic stories probably started out as being fear of another. You know, some new person moves into town, they seem to have weird religious customs far different than you or your neighbors, and so you start to question them, and maybe rumors spread, and you begin to blame them for bad things happening in your area. But specifically, this goes against something called blood libel, which is this idea that a Jewish woman or Jewish person generally, I suppose, would steal Catholic children in order to use their blood for rituals. 
that's strikingly similar to the story of Lilith, and it's also wound up in all kinds of other notions of the vampire. And while we can't really get into the whole history of anti-Semitism here on this episode, I think it's actually a current in monster lore that we don't usually talk about, but I think is a really important avenue to go down and maybe start investigating further. Okay, an episode on vampires just wouldn't be complete without discussing the historical figures who Bram Stoker and others used as templates for their stories. And although, of course, the stories of Vlad Dracul the Impaler are probably the most commonly used when discussing vampires, I've always been more drawn to another historical vampiric character. The Countess Elizabeth Bathory was a Hungarian noblewoman who would become infamous throughout history. Elizabeth was born into a noble house in 1539, born into wealth and power. Her family controlled the local government in her country of Transylvania, now Romania, and had family connections to the King of Poland and the Grand Duke of Lithuania, and just generally had significant connections and influence throughout all levels of the Transylvanian government. At the age of 11, she was engaged to Ferenc Nedasti, a nobleman who at that point was 15 years old. Supposedly, she then had a son at the age of 13 with a peasant man, who was given away to a peasant family, although the sourcing of that claim is a little bit less than perfect. Although, as we talk more and more about Elizabeth Bathory, you'll find that most of the sources are less than perfect. Anyways, she was married at the age of 15 to this same Ferenc Nadesty, but kept her family name because her family was significantly more powerful and noble than those stupid Nadesties. For a wedding present, her new husband gifted her his castle, Kashtis Castle, where she would spend most of her time and commit the bulk of her atrocities. You see, her husband, as part of the wedding present supposedly, had built an elaborate torture chamber within the castle, something that was perhaps not unheard of during the period. But his wife was often left alone to fend for herself and her people, kept in charge of their lands and peasants, while her husband was off being an important part of the war effort against the Ottoman Empire. Now, Ferenc was known for his especially harsh treatment of prisoners, something that we can imagine translated to his treatment of criminals at home as well. But it was when her husband was away fighting battles that Elizabeth Bathory seemed to acquire her taste for punishment and sadism. See, Elizabeth was not like most other queens or ladies or duchesses or whatever of the time period. She was very well-educated and intelligent for her station in life, I suppose. At a time when women were not normally given political control, her husband allowed her to rule in his stead. She spoke four languages, was noted for her intelligence in political science and diplomacy and the art of ruling, and so, again, when her husband was away, she was actually left in charge to deal out justice and deal with issues. And by some accounts, she was pretty good to the women in her area. But although the exact timeline of events isn't known, it seems to be the case that she found, during her routines as master of her lands and de facto ruler, that she enjoyed punishing those who found their ways into the dungeons in particular. It isn't exactly known when or how she found this proclivity. Some say that she had been taught the joys of sadism and torture by an aunt, who had also sexually indoctrinated Elizabeth into various different things, while others say that it was her marriage to her husband and his own love of brutal treatments that made her fall into this world. Regardless, what began in theory as a part of her duties as head of her lands eventually became an obsession and pastime for her, with her desires becoming more devious and her victims more numerous over time, 
At first, her victims were the children of peasants, who were hired as maids and servants, but who would disappear within the castle. This went on for quite some time, around 29 years, and caused the local villagers to whisper about the countess, who would hire local girls only to have them disappear forever. During this time, she would also throw lavish parties, as well as orgies, supposedly, with sadistic torture of peasant girls and servants a part of the draw of the affair. It's actually reported that the wedding of her daughter was celebrated by a particularly lurid event, described in some sources as a blood orgy, although this may be a part of the exaggeration of events that took place with her legend years after her death. At any event, things kept going but were pretty quiet until the death of her husband in the year 1604, at which point her rate of killings increased significantly. Her victims eventually began to include the daughters of the lower gentry, which raised suspicions and caused her to be investigated by the King of Hungary, finally, in the year 1610. During the investigation and trial, over 300 witnesses were found, who gave extremely detailed stories of the crimes and terrors that they had witnessed or had heard about within the castle. Although in popular culture it's said that she actually bathed in the blood of her victims to retain her youthful appearance, there's no mention of bloodbaths or, I guess, like literal bloodbaths, in the official accounts, and the first written account of such an event seems to have occurred at least a hundred years after her death and trial. However, the things she is known to have done are horrific. She's said to have performed sadistic acts of torture on these girls, biting them while they were alive, consuming their flesh, burning them with hot pokers, disfiguring their faces and arms and hands, freezing some of them to death, drinking their blood, and evidently enjoying a sexual thrill from these tortures, and also adding a kind of a, I don't know, an edge of sexual sadism to all of these tortures as well. She also appears to have been a fan of peakerism, or the sexual thrill of stabbing pins and other sharp objects into other people, an activity she performed on many of her victims. And actually, peakerism is what Albert Fish, the serial killer from New York City, or at least who operated in New York City for a time, is probably most well known for. One act she is infamous for, however, is honey torture, where she would cover a young girl with honey and leave her outside for insects to crawl over and consume. There are also stories of a similar thing to the honey torture, where she would leave a peasant girl tied up outside and slowly drip water onto her so that she would freeze to death slowly. Elizabeth Bathory is pretty terrifying, and honestly, I don't think any modern stories or adaptations of her tale have really done her justice. But it's one that I find fascinating, and really, if we're thinking about the top people who should have been turned into vampires, she is way up the list than Vlad Dracul, in my opinion. During the investigation, they found that she actually had two co-conspirators. Although Elizabeth was protected, until it became clear that the number of victims had gotten upwards of 650 or more. Although they hoped at first to put her into a convent, her crimes were considered so terrifying that she was finally punished via house arrest. She was jailed within a single cell within her own castle, surrounded by bricks except for two small holes for food and for air ventilation, and she would eventually die four years after her imprisonment, seemingly from natural causes. Her final number of victims is unknown, but in her 34 years of rule, it seemed that she managed to kill at least 300, but potentially as many as 650 or more peasant girls, maids, and the daughters of local nobles. So again, when we're talking about historical vampires, 
The story should have been called Bathory or Elizabeth or something, not Dracula. One final word that I think is quite interesting here. Many of these stories of vampires and even werewolves have at times been argued make sense of crimes such as serial murder or spree killing before we had these sort of stringent definitions to put on them. I think that argument we have sort of may hold some water, at least as we see in the case of Elizabeth Bathory. But ultimately with vampires, it makes far more sense to me that what we're seeing are scared villagers, beset by disease that shows no real outward signs but wasting away who need to find some explanation for what's happening to them and their families. And perhaps in that course of trying to figure it out, they exhume a body, and see that it has blood on its mouth. And well, perhaps they figure that the most likely explanation is that this corpse really is walking around in the moonlight, searching for victims in their minds. However, like in many cases of the paranormal, it seems that it's what the humans have done, or at least what they do in response to these paranormal events, that is far more terrifying than anything that we could have imagined before. Okay, so this episode is officially over, but I wanted to start doing something that I've heard on other shows that I think is really cool. We are going to thank everyone so far who's given us a review on iTunes, as well as all of our patrons by name. This show has been going on for a year, and we actually just passed the 100,000 total downloads mark. This show would not be possible without all of you, and especially our patrons to date, including Robert, first of his name on the Patreon lists, Appear, Amy, Elizabeth, Carol, Martine, Janelin, Rob the Second, Eater of Worlds, Travis, Sam, Lynn, and Frick and Frack. Thank you so much for supporting this show, and I hope the bonus content you've received so far, and will receive in the future, is going to keep you coming back for more. I'm actually just about to shoot a bonus video on vampirism, so stay tuned for that one. This show is also helped immensely by iTunes reviews, so if you've given an iTunes review, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Seriously, your reviews have made this show better, and I read and include everyone, what you think is good, what you think is bad, and what you think we should keep doing or change in the future. So the following people have given us an iTunes review so far with their name left over. We have CD Speed, Ice Fox Me, The Pam Hammer, The Baron 356, The Moose Medic, Baby Cake Loves Mitchies, Crystal Math, which is maybe my favorite name on this list, K Dot, History Goes Bump, Cinnamon Pod, Trevor LAR, Medelia, Zenger, Oki Lane, Fev Kalade 11. Ims Blue, I want to say, if I got that wrong, I'm sorry, Ims Blue. Christofferable, Freddy Samrickson, Spooky Fan, Nerds with Words, Theater Fans, Lexicon 1971, X Teen Marie, Newfuls 11, The Strange Animals Podcast, I Mike Dice, Zanara, Jonathan from Queens, TJ Brews, Carson Blackened, Teaspoon Tessie, and Bottom Feeder 129. Thank you so much for taking the time to leave our iTunes review, and thank you again, everyone, for listening and supporting the show. If you think you'd like to, please go share an iTunes review, and I will read your name on the next week's episode. And if you feel like doing it, please subscribe to us on all of your podcast apps, and also please think about supporting us on Patreon. That's it for this week's episode of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. 
Thank you again so much for listening. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.